0: If you're a regular visitor to the FX Medicine website, you would have seen many of our great infographics. These are all now available for use in your clinic. You can download them for free. And the
1: high resolution versions are available for purchase as A3 or A2 posters, or as a digital file. Simply click on the button beneath your favorite infographics at fxmedicine.com.au.
2: to FXOMICS with Dr. Mark Donoghue, your gateway to genetics, research and technology in the field of personalized medicine.
1: Hi everyone and welcome. Today, we are talking with Dr. Jonathan Bortz. Jonathan graduated in medicine in South Africa before moving to the Mount Sinai Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio to specialize in endocrinology and metabolism. He then moved on to Washington University at St. Louis, Missouri, and has since 2006 been working with Albion Laboratories, developing considerable expertise in B12 and folate physiology. He joined Balchem Corporation in 2016, where his focus expanded to choline metabolism and its contribution to the one carbon metabolic cycle. Dr. Jonathan Bortz, welcome. Thank you very much, Mark. Look, today is exciting for me because we're finally getting away from this MTHFR gene and we're getting on to something that I think of as a little more interesting. So we're going to talk about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and the part played by choline, uh, particularly, obviously, phosphatidylcholine, and a particular interest of yours, which I understand is the the PEMT, a... a catalyst for the conversion of phosphatidylethanolamine to phosphatidylcholine. Big big topic to cover and why livers go bad and why we're facing this catastrophe of uh, liver replacement. But before we do that, just tell me a bit about how you got into this area, what your path was from sure. undergraduate. Well,
0: um, I'm not sure how much time you had, <laughs> but uh, i think I've been in the U.S. for close on 35 years, trained in South Africa, as you uh, can tell. Um, actually came to uh, the U.S. in 1984 and went to Cleveland. I think I was probably the only person who bought a one-way ticket to Cleveland. The travel <laughs> agent had never heard of such a thing. But uh, was trained at the Mount Sinai Hospital and then moved to St. Louis uh, to do an endocrine fellowship. So uh, I then uh, uh, did my research here um, and then went into practice in 1989, was in practice as an endocrinologist uh, for about uh, 15 years, a little under 15 years, uh, developed a uh, multidisciplinary diabetes center. um, And um, that sort of led me into developing a sort of online uh, disease management program that I started a little biotech company uh, uh, on to raise some money. And during the process of raising a second tranche uh, for this company, um, I uh, went to solicit a successful uh, business person here in St. Louis who was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company, a, a publicly traded company, and uh, while I thought he was interested in my diabetes disease management program, um, he sort of uh, thought that I might uh, fit into his company, uh, which had uh, a couple years earlier uh, started a branded product franchise Mm -hmm. in uh, two areas uh, that uh, were completely unknown to me, and one was prenatal vitamins, and the other one was um, for iron replacement. What was different about this was that this company made generic medications mainly; they had a small branded side, but they entered into a segment of um, that, that was uh, really uh, exploiting a, an FDA. Requirement that if you formulate a nutritional supplement with uh, one milligram of folic acid, uh, that requires a prescription. So it needs to be under the supervision of a physician. And that way, they developed a prescriptive franchise for prenatal vitamins and uh, hematinic products. And I was asked as a physician to help them uh, develop uh, new product opportunities, identify unmet needs. Uh, I was completely unschooled um, in or, or had no background in pharmaceuticals or the regulatory environment or so on and so forth. But what was interesting to me is that um, as an endocrinologist, uh, I was supposed to know about um, nutrition and uh, nutrients and certainly how it impacted uh, lipid metabolism and various other inborn errors of metabolism, et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. but found that I actually knew very, very little uh, about nutrition. So I began my sort of pharmaceutical career, if you will, um, with a huge disadvantage, which I think turned out to be a significant asset in the long run. And the disadvantage was that I knew nothing about uh, the sort of physiology of, of nutrition and, and nutrients. The advantage is that I knew nothing about nutrition. And therefore, whatever I had to do, I had to sort of build up from the ground up. Um, and how I did that was, sorry, to learn about either the area, the physiology, whether it was iron metabolism or um, folate or anything, uh, any of the major ingredients that were, you know, currently used to constitute, uh, you know, prenatal vitamins or whatever. And that's sort of how I cut my teeth on, on learning to understand that nutrient, um, physiology, nutrient pharmacology is extraordinarily complex. Um, and, um, and this is sort of how I then um, began, I suppose, my career in the sort of product development side of things that were considered to be pretty pedestrian by doctors and, and major pharmaceutical companies.
1: It is uh, one of those oddities that we learned biochemistry way too early in, well certainly in my medical degree, it seemed irrelevant, it was more a hurdle you had to pass through to get to clinical medicine. And then you get to clinical medicine, and thirty years down the line, you realise, "Wow, I wish I'd paid more attention to those early days."
0: That's exactly what happened to me. In other words, um, physiology—well, not physiology—biochemistry and chemistry was not just an obstacle um, or or irrelevant. It was, it was, um, it was the bane of my life. (laughs) I I hated it, didn't understand it, uh, and to this day, don't really. Understand um, all the sort of uh, the way in which biochemistry or biochemical uh, reactions are portrayed. That uh, they mean nothing to me, right. um, which which is one of the reasons that I had to, um, you know, had to uh, find other ways for me to understand, um, you know, what's going on. But that has turned out to be um, exciting because I've actually really uh, been fortunate enough and been given the opportunity to uh, be able to explore you know in depth and it's a fascinating area
1: it is and I suppose the building blocks were put in place all those years ago so that there was you know deeply some kind of knowledge that underpins it but I do agree you know my again my medical career began with not a single hour of nutrition we had, no concept in a medical system when we're dealing with diseases, that nutrition played a part in prevention or even the management or supplementation could have anything to do with it. It was very much a career of, here's the biochemistry, here's the conditions, these are the drugs that you use. And it was a dissatisfying feeling that we were missing something in prevention or less invasive ways of intervening in disease.
0: Correct. Absolutely
1: correct. So how did you get from there to here? I mean, the, the interest that I have okay. today is we're, we're dealing with uh, something that's becoming a bit of a catastrophe within medicine, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and the impact that is going to have on our medical system. Uh, an issue sure. that is primarily in the Western world, from my understanding anyway, but there are various cultural groups or different countries with uh, different susceptibilities. How did you move from infant formulas and uh, infant nutrition or infant uh, prenatal um, supplementation to non alcoholic fatty liver disease and the whole PEMPT scenario? Yeah,
0: so I, I think, and again, it, it, Uh, This might be a longer answer than you want, but um, my introduction, I I, I think that what I would describe is that my area of interest is really more in one-carbon metabolism, right? and that sort of began, again, surreptitiously. Why? Because in the prenatal vitamin world... Uh, everything uh, was predicated on folic acid or folate. Mm. Uh, it was about twenty years ago when the um, the first SNP was described. I, like probably everybody else, uh, just didn't have a clue what that was, um, and felt that this was just a little um, sort of technicality that is being exploited by the you know pharmaceutical companies, mm. um, and. Um, uh you know, from there, um, I had a, um, you know, one of the things that I had to do in formulating these products was to make sure that every ingredient um, had earned its place, wasn't just on the label because it was expected to be on the label. What was the amount that was needed? How can we improve the the bioavailability or, or absorption? And one of the areas that I moved to next was after folic acid, which is, you know, very well absorbed, as you know, Um, uh, how do we uh, improve on vitamin B12? And um, what um, the conclusion that I uh, came to pretty rapidly was that the only way to improve vitamin uh, uh, B12's bioavailability is with intrinsic factor.
2: Yes.
0: And literally about a couple months later, I heard of a little company in Denmark that had been successful in... Um, um, in inserting the human gene for um, uh, intrinsic factor in a plant, Arabidopsis, and successfully transformed that plant, was able to cultivate it, grow it, and extract uh, intrinsic factor. Now, plants don't use, it's a pristine environment. Plants don't use cabalamin. So whatever was taken out was actually human intrinsic factor and um, i landed up uh we uh, you know uh, this company was acquired i landed up acquiring those assets um and um, now went into the business of starting my own little biotech company to commercialize um the production of a recombinant human intrinsic factor protein mm-hmm. um as a way to be able to deliver b12 in a physiologic dose so I went from folate to B12, and then I was doing some consulting for a company um, that uh, is the sort of leader in chelated minerals um, based out of Utah, and uh, um, uh, that company was then acquired by a um, a corporation um, who uh, is the sort of supplier of Mm coli, Uh, to uh, probably eighty uh, you percent know, of the world's choline is actually produced by this company. So um, I, I was asked to um, you know to follow that acquisition, and that is currently my, my place of of employ, if you will. Um, and so what's happened is sort of three um, you know two vitamins and one essential nutrient that all play a, a critical role in one carbon metabolism have sort of been, you know, in the wings, if you will, and sort of intersected, you know, with which is what has brought me to this. So when I then started learning about Coley, it was, you know, with the same, um, you know, sense that I described earlier, not knowing anything about it. Um, and I then began to try and understand what does choline do? What is it? Where is it? Why is it? Um, so that's been a, a journey that sort of led me into this, um, the, the this sort of deeper appreciation of the sort of uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms
2: mm-hmm. into
0: conditions um, uh, like uh, non alcoholic liver, uh, liver disease. Um, into brain development, uh, for both child and prenatal stuff. So, it's um, it's been a treat, but but that's, uh, it's, it. Almost seems like it's been um, you know relatively well choreographed, if you will.
1: It has, and it, it dances around this one carbon, the carbon with three hydrogens, and you seem to have uh, three different products and three different areas of interest, but with one common factor: the, the methyltransferase. The choline story is not as visible as the um, folate and the uh, cabalamin story. So can you fill me in a bit, what does choline do? What's its fate in the body and is it an essential? So my understanding is with PEMT we do manufacture at least phosphatidylcholine from phosphatidylethanolamine so it's not an essential nutrient or is it an essential nutrient?
0: Well it's the fact that our bodies make it has taken it out of the realm of a vitamin. It used to be called vitamin B4. Uh, but sort of like Pluto, it lost its sort of planet state and um, and was then designated as an essential nutrient because the body does make but not enough. Right. But I think that, that um, maybe it would be useful to um, – uh, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, what what choline is um and then we can describe uh, to some extent um what impact it has and why it has such a broad impact uh, across various physiologic you know and now even disease states
1: that would be great
0: so choline choline is um really derived from the simplest amino acid glycine and um It is uh, what happens is uh, instead of the carboxyl group, you know, three methyl groups land up, uh, you know, attaching to glycine and then gets carboxylated to betaine. So, Mm -hmm. betaine is, in other words, you know, another word for betaine is trimethylglycine. So, it's basically glycine that's methylated. So, choline um, really uh, is principally metabolized uh, by phosphorylation in the, in the cytoplasm, um, crosses the, uh, the, the cell membrane, uh, one of the transporters uh, in which there's a SNP, a well-known SNP. Um, but uh, about 70% of this gets uh, pushed down, this one's called the Kennedy pathway, to CDP, cytodine diphosphate choline. And that is the major substrate for producing phosphatidylcholine that becomes the substance of most membranes uh, and VLDL, for example. Well, there's an alternative um, pathway, and and for this, choline has to get shuttled into the mitochondria, and where it is then converted to betaine, like I described earlier, and um, and, it's, and it's an oxidation process. So it's, codeine is oxidized to betaine. And now betaine becomes the way in which uh, one or more of these methyl groups can get um, uh, separated and therefore donated to, to, a, to, a, to a, uh, a worthy recipient. Right. And um, it gets transported back into the cytoplasm. And now is the way in which uh, it will donate that methyl group to homocysteine and uh, thereby making methionine. In fact, homocysteine has got that thiol group, that that sulfhydryl group. Um, And the methyl just basically attaches to that, which is, I think, one of the reasons why um, homocysteine Larger amounts is relatively toxic to, to tissues, yes. neuro tissues, and, and others. Um, and the way in which that toxicity is um, reduced when it gets converted to methionine is that 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 sulfhydryl group is just capped by this you know methyl group.
2: Mm-hmm. So now
0: mm. now you've got methionine, and methionine is a very important um, amino acid for the start codon and on the, you know uh, DNA synthesis. But this now gets channeled uh, with the presence of ATP, gets made into S-adenosylmethionine or SAM or SAMe, and SAM uh, is an important transporter of these methyl groups, you know, to a variety of functions. Well, it's under the influence of um, of, um, of estrogen in, in women, in which SAM um, can get trimethylated by the PEMPT enzyme. This is where PEMPT plays its role, and it sort of goes through three cycles of methylating uh, um, uh, SAM and, uh, 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 you know, at uh, least methylating uh, phosphatidyl ethanolamine, mm. okay, forgive me, from SAM. And this is an alternative way of producing phosphatidylcholine. So you'll see that just in this oxidative pathway, there is some there is redundancy. In other words, there are two ways to make phosphatidylcholine. Well, it turns out that there's a very good reason for that, Mark, and that is that um, phosphatidylcholine made through the PEMT pathway or this methionine, beta-methionine, SAM, oxidative pathway, um, preferentially binds to longer chain fatty acids like DHA and arachidonic acid mm. and it's the phosphatidylcholine, the phospholipid um, through the PEMP pathway that binds DHA and takes it to the liver and then uh, let's say if it's, uh, it's, uh, it's in a woman and she's pregnant across the placenta to the to the fetus mm-hmm. DHA does not bind To phosphatidylcholine made through the phosphorylation or Kennedy pathway. So, um, you know, there's a T junction right early on with choline. Is either you're going to be pushed into the majority of your work is making phospholipids that will constitute parts of membranes and myelin and all that sort of stuff, or you'll get oxidized and now become a methylator. So, I think the way I look at, um, at the role of choline, it's, um, it's critical for the um, uh, integrity of membranes, okay, through mainly the Kennedy pathway, or it is used for methylating a variety of, of compounds as well as genes. So those are the two main sort of, uh, uh, say, characteristics, if you will. Of choline.
1: Can I just interrupt the role of estrogen there? The, I mean, I, I can see from the clinical perspective the upside of estrogen escalating the the metabolism of phosphatidyl ethanolamine to phosphatidylcholine. If that carries the DHA to the brain of the developing baby, there's got to be an upside in evolutionary terms for that.
0: Absolutely. So just think about this. The development of the fetal brain um, absolutely takes off um, in the third trimester. So I was at a conference. Actually, I was at a conference in uh, in Melbourne uh, a couple of weeks ago, in which one of the speakers described that between 35 weeks and 40 weeks, or maybe it was 32 weeks, I forget, but it was like the last months, you know, of of um, gestation, um, the fetal brain doubles in size. Hmm. Um and the uh there is an there is a dramatic rise in choline requirements in that third trimester, and there's a dramatic rise in DHA requirements by the fetus in that third trimester. And um the PEMPT gene is responsive to estrogen. So it's an estrogen responsive gene. So as estrogen uh, ramps up in that third trimester, so too the machinery right. uh, ramp, ramps up concomitantly. Um, so, that by the way, you know, um, uh, I don't know when the paper was published, but you know, a few decades ago, uh, Steve um, Zysel from the University of North Carolina, who really is the the sort of modern forefather of choline. He's sort of done so much of the work that's put choline you know, on the map. Um, he actually did a study in which he uh, took 10 healthy men, put them on a 10% choline diet, and it was a very choline-restricted diet, and then um, uh, monitored not just choline levels, but their uh, liver function tests. And I was actually astonished to, to see the data and that is that within two weeks, liver function tests are elevated. Right. Um, significantly increased at three weeks. And when he gave these healthy folks 550 milligrams of choline, within one week, LFTs had returned to normal. So it was that 550 milligram dose that the FDA in May of 2000. Seventeen, I think, um, uh, said this is the or this is the recommended daily intake: 550 milligrams for men. And what was extrapolated from there was 425 for women, 450 milligrams for pregnant women. Why was it a lower dose? Not because it's on a kilo- per kilogram basis, but because women have got a, a an estrogen. Mechanism by which they can produce more uh, choline than men. So I'm speaking that out just to demonstrate the impact of the estrogen sensitivity on the PEMP gene.
1: Does the FDA also uh, acknowledge a higher requirement post menopause? Or, uh, I mean, are they aware of the mechanism that they're regulating there?
0: So I I, I can't. can't, (laughs) I can't answer for what they are or aren't aware of.
1: Um,
0: probably they are. Uh, I haven't thought about it that way, but um, um, but I think that yeah, requirements should go up post-menopausal, sure, sure.
1: correct? But it is the oestrogen that increases the rate of the metabolism of the uh, of the PE to the PC. And That's the PC right. then tra- helps to the transport of the DHA and other nutrients in the pregnant woman when the estrogen is at its highest for a prolonged period to the brain of the developing fetus. Is that the kind of stepwise mechanism?
0: But so, so that is correct. In other words, the same with arachidonic acid, which yes. is also required by the fetal brain. So there is a this sort of selection of these two long-chain fatty acids, which is why. And, and and by the time, you know, the third trimester sort of is winding down, something like seven grams of fatty acids are transported across the placenta every day. So it's like substantial. And uh, by the way, this is an obligatory situation. So when we give pregnant women DHA, um, we're actually replacing what is sort of being... Um, you sequestered from their own pool, if you will. Right. That's how important the HA is, you know, for fetal brain development. Um, but, Mark, I think that um, what sort of first drew my attention, uh, you know, to the sort of um, impact of these SNPs um, was um, th- the work that was done by Steve Visele to look at the SNP Associated with PEMT. And I, again, was pretty astonished to see that it had very similar um, prevalence in the Caucasian population um, that the uh, methyl tetrahydrofolate um, SNP has. Right. Uh, and that's about, uh, it's, it's, and there are many different studies, but it's at least 50% of Caucasian women. Um, and as high as 70%, who've got, you know, one of the alleles for a estrogen insensitivity. So what that means is that women who've got this particular SNP um, don't enjoy the advantage that they should of a high of, of the sort of high estrogen uh, environment in the last trimester. Which is why they would require more um, choline, for example, in order to encourage that um, 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 uh, uh, pathway, the pent pathway, Mm. um, to to drive the uh, the the phosphoethanolamine sort of methylation process. So, uh, and, and in fact, this has has been shown. There's been some Beautiful work done by Marie Cordell at uh, University of Cornell in which she took uh, pregnant women and in, in their third trimester. But th- this is an important thing to, to describe as well. The average intake of choline um, in uh, women is roughly in the 330 to 350 milligram per day range. In fact, when you look at NHANES data and, and other um, uh, meta analyses and other papers from, from, you know, both developing and emerging, you know, uh, uh, economies, the approximately ninety percent of women um, do not take the recommended daily intake oh. of codi. Um, so what she did was in her cohort. Um, where the average choline intake was about 380, she supplemented uh, randomized, you know, uh, trial. Um, she randomized half of them to, to getting 100 milligrams of, of uh, choline supplemented and 550 milligrams supplemented. So. These two cohorts had either 480 or 930 milligrams of coli, and what she was able to do is, and, and they, they took this for the third trimester, and they also took it for um, uh, another cohort. Took it for the first three months of the nursing their, their infants, and she, she's done a lot of different stuff, you know, uh, on those uh, on those subjects. One of which was. Um, uh, with stable isotopes, able to label uh, what the metabolic fate is of this choline. And she's pretty much confirmed a few things. One is is that um, there is uh, approximately 70% of the choline is metabolized down the Kennedy pathway. Uh, And only about 30% goes through this um, uh, betaine methionine. Uh, uh, pathway. Um, secondly, what she showed is that there was no wastage of choline and uh, no excretion in the urine. In other words, even in the folks who were given ne- you know, nearly twice the, the recommended daily intake, um, it was all utilized. Right. Um, and um, so therefore, even as we think of 550 for men and 450 for women, um, that. Probably a more accurate description is that that's the amount that is required to keep the liver healthy, <laughs> not necessarily the optimal dose. Um, but with that, uh, along with these sort of, um, um, uh, you know, with, with, with uh, this clinical uh, series that, that, that she looked at, she was also able to uh, determine whether um, um, the the higher amount of choline was was capable of methylating certain genes. So for example, Mm -hmm. she looked at the corticotropin-releasing hormone gene in the placenta and found that the higher um, supplemented group had uh, a greater degree of gene methylation. And with the actual expression of uh, CRH uh, was significantly decreased. So methylation, as you know, its its its, it's epi- main epigenetic effect, or one of its main epigenetic effects, is that it um, dec- uh, it stops transcription. It downregulates the the production of the product. So um, she was able to demonstrate that higher choline reduces corticotropin releasing hormone in the placenta. And when she measured the cortisol levels in the infants, they were uh, diminished. So um, what she was able to demonstrate that a higher uh, prenatal choline actually reduced a more, a, a less metabolic stress infant right. at the time of birth. Mm-hmm. But it says an interesting thing about the direct impact of methylation Um uh, over and above you know you know other other effects as well
1: it is arguably the most popular concept in genetics at the clinical level is to methylate or not methylate to check the mthfr i think now we after today's talk well, probably more of us will be looking at pemt as another way of trying to influence methylation pathways i do have a concern sometimes that it's a little bit like giving kids, the controls of a 747 jet, that methylation is a very powerful process. We understand little about it. And there is this kind of concept of more methylation equals better. And as you've said, you know, there is an influence that is, you know, uh, transcription across the genome where methylation plays a part with genetic expression where we, I don't think yet we know what we're doing as clinicians. I think is, would you regard, would you say that's fair too?
0: We absolutely do not know what we're doing. Okay. Mm. However, however, so so in fact, as I've read on this, I've um, um, first of all, you know, it, it's it's always illuminating to read a paper by a researcher who has a certain view, and and, and, and as you know, people get, develop a vested interest in not just their research topic, but NIH grants and all that sort of stuff. It's, 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 it's very um, uh, it's sometimes uh, easy to lose one's objectivity. Um, but it's always refreshing to come across a paper that says, you know what, we expected this and we found the exact opposite, um, and we don't quite know why and um so we we all have a natural tendency to want to sort of tie things up into nice little neat packages, yes, and this area is anything but neat, and I think what it says to me is it, I don't see the danger signals, okay, to say that we we we're sort of now zapping everything with a with a laser, for example, how do we know that we're not breaking things you know uh et cetera et cetera um I think that I have an inherent um, sort of uh, trust in the fact that um, it's important for us to have methyl groups that we ingest. Choline is the methyl donor to the body from a nutrient perspective, essentially. Uh, Folate and um, B12 are methyl carriers. Yes. So how do you expect either folates uh, folic acid or folates to work well, or, or cabalamine to work well. If we don't provide enough of the methyl batons, you know, in the relay race, if you will.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, so I think that that that's one, uh, and, and there are controls that are so exquisite and so beyond our ken at this point that um, I think that the best we could do. Um, like anything, is to approach things with some degree of moderation. But one of the, one of the advantages of, or, or one of the, one of the, the, the safety uh, valves, if you will, is that even to meet current dietary recommendations, uh, let's say in a supplement, uh, you need a, a reasonable amount. Yeah. Um, so it's not as if people are going to be uh, massively overdosing um, on choline for example there's a much higher uh, chance of overdosing on b12 because it's measured in micrograms or overdosing in folate um, Marie Cordell, who's whose previous whose who's interest is also folate you know maintains that we give super physio, super pharmacologic doses of folate yeah. uh, choline's in milligrams so when we talk to to formulators, and we say, um, and they say, how are we going to get 500 milligrams um, uh, into a tablet? Because uh, the the cation, you know, is anywhere between 40 to 70 percent. So, you know, we have to get a, a huge or several, you know, tablets or capsules. And what I advise is to say, look, once just get to the, the recommended daily intake. So a dose of 100 or 200 milligrams will actually get you into that zone along with your your normal diet. Um, I think a bigger challenge is to persuade um, people who've been uh, brainwashed over the last 60 years that eating eggs and red meat um, um, and liver is uh, the equivalent of... uh, you know, consuming daily doses of cyanide. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that is a challenge mm. um, for us to say. You know what? Eating eggs um, is actually helpful um, and doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily you know have the, the sort of negative you know impact uh, that that we all were raised to believe that it does.
1: So can um, vegans and vegetarians? So the, the the choline is available and is bioavailable from a vegetarian sources as well, isn't it? So it's not purely meat and animal product eaters,
0: right? So the choline, the choline um, that is um, uh, available now is actually synthesised, um, and uh, so it's a chemical reaction. Num- number one, number yep. two is that the salt. You can either get a choline by tartrate, yes, and the Salt is obviously from tartaric acid; it's a derivative of uh, of grapes, um, and um, uh, the other one is uh, what you find in infant formulas mainly is a choline chloride. So, yeah, for for vegans or people who do not want to have animal source, um, you know, nutrients, uh, certainly supplementation uh, should meet their needs.
1: I I would like to just address this issue of the. Prevalence of the A allele. Um, I think this is the G five two three A of the PEMP. The A allele is the uh, effectively a low function uh, allele. It's highly prevalent. Uh, from what you were saying, I think it's almost the majority of the population carries one or both of the A alleles. That means, does it not, that there is a population at risk? from either low choline in the diet or there is a population at risk for not producing the betaine or not producing the um, the quality of the cell membranes. That's a huge proportion of the population that we have to look at. And the second issue I want to address is we're seeing fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease increasingly happening Are these two things linked at all? Is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and the choline question, this kind of genetic variant, are they linked together in populations like the white American and Australian populations who get overweight? Are those, or are they distinct issues entirely? Okay.
0: So um, maybe if if it's okay, I'm going to start with the last uh, part of your question first. And, this is what, sort of what I was referring to earlier when um, when I was saying that it's actually refreshing to um, uh, to see work that that doesn't necessarily come up with nice neat answers. Um, what has clearly been demonstrated is that um, if we look at the various um, uh, SNPs. Um, that uh, would impact uh, both the the choline um, sort of transport across uh, either cell or mitochondrial membranes, um, or so, so the, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 family, for example, um, or in the um, the, the uh, folate metabolism or the folate B twelve you know cycle. Um, what you find is that there is obviously tremendous population-to-population variability. It's very hard to pick on things. Clearly, I think that the Caucasian um, group, from my reading, um, has sort of, uh, across the board, got the highest prevalence um, of most of the sort of uh, important SNPs, you know, associated in in this pathway. By the way, there are probably... Um, you know uh, the last I saw was three hundred and counting you know snips that land up having an effect uh, sometimes mild sometimes significant you know in the pent pathway and right. many many more in the folate and and b12 side as well many many more so I think getting back to your earlier statement about you know this is the wild west it's it 's often very difficult for us to wrap our head around the fact that some snips are important in a in, a, in a more important in a certain population group, but even in a population group, it lands be, up becoming um, sort of uh, uh, any disease state. Fatty liver is a great example. Is multifactorial. Yeah. So so we always have a a, a a predilection for wanting to blame one thing, right? That was the whole cholesterol story, right? Um, uh want to blame one thing and then we'll blame something else then we'll blame something else so um one of the um publications that came out of the university of north carolina steve's ourselves group was trying to identify what are the SNPs um, that um that really uh, you know have uh, an impact on let's say fatty liver and what they what they found is that um there are a whole bunch of them, um, and they looked at, for example, and, and again, you're limited by how many steps you could look at mm-hmm. in a reasonably funded clinical study, um, you know, that isn't taken on by a sort like a, a genomic, you know, project, if you will. Right. And what they what they sort of concluded was, yeah, there are all of them are associated, some more than others. Um, uh, what 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 um, uh, Dr. Visele, uh landed up doing was saying, you know what, we shouldn't even blame one SNP because um, uh, I think he might have found one SNP that had a consistent um, sort of negative effect okay, on fatty liver. Right. And that is a SNP that I'd never heard of until I'd read the paper. And that's called uh, PNPLA-3. Okay, um, which is responsible for, um, I think that was it, which is responsible for uh, making uh, VLDL.
2: Um,
0: and, um, but the others become associatives. So what he started doing is looking at panels or looking at associations. Let's look at five or 10 SNPs and, uh, and put these into two or three different or four different categories. And see, can we figure out um, a panel that will end up being predictive of? So I think that he came to the conclusion was that that is probably a better way to go. But it also recognizes the fact that there are certain uh, African-Americans, for example, U.S. African-Americans have a much lower incidence of, of uh, uh, fatty, uh, fatty liver um, some of them have, uh, you know, some of the common SNPs associated, but they don't seem to be playing a role. Caucasians have those SNPs, and it seems to play a role. Um, so what he was coming out to say was that, you know what, we might be able to use these sort of um, uh, groupings of SNPs to identify uh, vulnerable individuals. Where lifestyle if I remember correctly he he looked at a um at a morbidly obese group uh who were undergoing bariatric surgery then he looked at a group from a liver uh clinic so these were liver people and then uh, morbidly obese people okay who yes, they had a high incidence of fatty liver, but it wasn't the same as the liver people cohort right so I guess the message is is that um, uh, again it gets back to your earlier comment. This is such early days, right? Um, I was hoping I you were there's... going to
1: give me this solution and say no, it's just one SNP, and if we cover this with trimethylglycine, or I thought there would be an easy answer, <laughs> and I know there never is. But every every so often, I just think, yeah, that SNP looks no,
0: but but I do think that in a sense it does provide us with. Um, a concept to say if we increase the the uh, availability of coding we know that there are key functional um, SNPs. He calls them, you know, uh, uh, you know, effect alleles that really do have an impact. As we as we know, most SNPs, um, you know, are silent. We we don't know what they do or wh- whether they do anything or whatever it is, but we do know that there are several important SNPs that do land up decreasing the efficacy of the enzyme that they are, um, you know, designed to produce. And therefore, that reduction in enzyme capability is telling us that we should be increasing substrate in order to offset that. That okay. is part of the story of the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, you know, SNP, yes. right? right. Um, uh, you know, we have, we have a challenge with so there is a way to compensate and therefore if we do so on a more blanket basis, and I go back to, you know, Dr. Cordell's study where she says that, hey, nine hundred and eighty milligrams, nine hundred and thirty milligrams, sorry, in a pregnant woman doesn't get lost in the urine, tells me we've got some room.
1: Okay. Some with some wiggle room. So is overdosage even known? Is there a, such a thing as overdosage with choline?
0: The, so the answer is no. Um, the upper limit that is uh, recommended by the, uh, the FDA is somewhere in the range of, I think, at 3,000 or 3,500. Wow. Okay, so it's substantially above what our current dosing capabilities uh, are. The toxic level is described as 10,000 milligrams, and that degree of toxicity. Is um, is a fishy odor, but um, uh, <laughs> the answer is no. There was some concern years ago. There were some papers published about uh, an impact on prostate, but that has been disproven. Um, uh, but the answer is we've got we've got uh, quite a length of rope to deal with here,
1: and so that means a bit of exploring to be done about the potential impact of intervention with choline. Uh, Just, you know, we've dealt with the other cofactors, um, the trimethylglycine, S-adenosylmethionine. They're all parts of this story, aren't they? And so uh, are we kind of looking at the manipulation of the various cofactors of the S-adenosylmethionine itself, which seems to be a critical factor in the phosphatidylcholine story, or is it primarily a choline issue that if you deliver enough substrate, the body will sort it out itself no matter what the snips?
0: No. The, the, I think it's a great question. And, um, and, and I think that this is why I like to think of this as a one-carbon story,
2: yeah.
0: because there's been ample evidence to suggest that um, you, you really need adequate amounts of the appropriate Um, you know, three players here, the choline, the B12, and the folate. Mm. And, um, you know, I mentioned some of the redundancy associated with making phosphatidylcholine two ways. Uh, There are also two ways to um, methylate homocysteine, and one is through the choline pathway, and the other one is through um, folate. And folate can't methylate directly. Folate has to pass its methyl group Right. To cabalamine, and it's cabalamine um, that uh, through uh, um, methionine synthase can uh, methylate homocysteine. Mm-hmm. So, again, there are two ways. That again shows you how critical the methionine generation is.
2: Yes. That
0: uh, um, if you have a deficiency of the one, you rely more heavily on the other. And I saw some papers a few years ago that actually looked at seasonal differences where people may land up having higher animal food uh, intake for uh, certain maybe hunting season uh, you know, times and then more of the uh, non-animal food or vegetable. And it turns out that their, um, their pathways land up uh, uh, adapting to this flux.
2: Right. Um,
0: Number two is that we've also noticed that, um, uh, the same happens to these genes. The genes get, uh, upregulated or downregulated according to, um, what the adequacy is of these other, um, you know, methyl carriers are. Um, and that's also work that's come out of, uh, out of Cornell. So. Um, And and then there's the other aspect, and that is everyone talks about folate or the methyl tetrahydrofolate. Um, There's something called the methyl tetrahydrofolate trap. And what that that means is that the step between tetrahydrofolate and methyl tetrahydrofolate is irreversible. Mm -hmm. The only way you can get uh, back to tetra and, and therefore go back into folate and then produce all this other effects in, in, in other synthetic pathways is in the presence of cobalamin. So if you've got a B12 deficiency, which, by the way, is a lot more common than people think.
1: Yes, it is. Um, it? A
0: lot more common. If you've got a B12 deficiency, you can't uh, g- uh, get rid of that methyl group and now um, you, you, you land up having potentially a functional folate deficiency. So you need methyl yeah, you you need the cobalamin to make sure that you're metabolizing folate properly. You need folate to be able to receive uh, its methyl group. Um, you know, uh, if you cobalamin, and then if you land up paralyzing that system because you've got a deficiency of one or both, then you lean more heavily on choline. And choline, its primary um, sort of uh, there's a picking order. And methylating the genes, the epigenetic effects are so important that choline, if it's deficient or if it's in inadequate in supply, will start pulling choline from the membranes, from the phosphatidylcholine, which is what leads to the uh. leakage of, of of enzymes out of liver, out of muscle, CPK. Um, you start having inadequate Um, choline to produce uh, um, VLDL. So your phosphatidylcholine is not being incorporated in your triglyceride carrier. And VLDL is critical for exporting triglycerides out of the liver. Um, Phosphatidylcholine is about 40% of mitochondrial membrane. So you take inability to export triglycerides from liver mitochondrial membrane dysfunction therefore energy um, uh, uh, you know, uh, challenges or deficiencies together with uh, liver uh, uh, cell membrane um, uh, integrity issues and now you set up for fatty liver right. So that is a fairly simplistic view but it's but it's not far from, what goes on in early stage. A lot of the drug development that's been focused on fatty liver is actually looking at late stage, antifibrosis right. uh, stuff. Whereas the nutrient basis of actually how to protect um, and uh, provide enough uh, both for VLDL, membranes, mitochondrial, um, there's substantial literature support for that.
1: So that, uh, I mean, I, I do appreciate that the fatty liver story also has something to do with inflammatory issues on the gastrointestinal tract and the liver dealing with that so probiotics tend to also have an impact on fatty liver disease and progression it sounds like we should be focusing more on the whole story if we're going to look at the fatty liver depositions the methylene uh, the the methyl group transfer transfer is a choline donor adequate b12 adequate folate and that gives you the ability to donate the methyl groups and transport them and to keep the liver out of fatty uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is that likely to be the Absolutely. story
0: no that, that is the story right. that is the story
1: okay so in practical terms can we have practitioners primarily who listen to the uh, this podcast What do we do practically? I mean, we we try to reduce gastrointestinal inflammatory disorders, maybe increase uh, absorption and nutrition, try to keep the B12 levels high um, and the folates from dietary and supplemental sources high. I think a missing piece has possibly been we failed to look at the choline, partly because we're so fascinated with MTHFR as the early SNP that everyone knew the name of and now there's another player in the field. So practically, a doctor who's seeing a person with those transaminitis, we call it, you know, the transaminase is just a bit out of the person going the wrong direction. Apart from weight loss, which everyone kind of gets, what can we do in nutrition or in supplementation to sabotage the non-alcoholic fatty liver story, the progression? So
0: look, there are, certainly in the U.S., um, and I'm not sure uh, what's on the market in in Australia other parts of the world. But in the U.S., um, there are several standalone um, uh, supplements that contain uh, anywhere from 250 to 500 milligrams of
2: choline.
0: So if you think that the average diet is going to be in that, let's say, 350 to, let's say, 350, okay, um I personally take uh seven hundred milligrams I take two three hundred fifty milligram capsules right. um and so I'm saying to myself I'm taking about a thousand milligrams of codeine. um and by the way, um I did have uh somebody who uh <laughs> And again, you know, I'm not in practice anymore. But I used to see these this transaminitis, as you described, and I used to do an ultrasound and see if there were gallstones and this and that. But we didn't do anything about it, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. So I think the easiest thing to do at this point literally is to say to, 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 uh, to your patients, this is a supplement, um, and I would recommend, you know, uh, Probably in the range of, of five hundred plus. I'm not worried about an upper dose here. Yeah. If somebody wanted to take two five hundreds, you know, I think uh, that that's uh, that's uh, fine and dandy. Um, I think that um, uh, the the this should be the sort of cornerstone of what practitioners should be looking at. Um, with their subjects, whether they've got elevated, um, you know, uh, LFTs or not, it's the same applies to elevated CPKs, sarcopenia. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, so those, those are those are certainly two areas. Um, and um, and I think you know the other aspect here is look, it, it's difficult. To, uh, certainly, in a, in a country like the US that has got uh, folate fortification, folate deficiency um, is uh, is much less common. Vitamin B12 deficiency. There's a uh, uh, Framingham study uh, published about, I think, eight ten years ago that showed that 39% of the population had a subclinical B12. Yeah. Um, you know, measuring B12 in the lab, the range is anywhere from 300 to 900 picomoles yes. per liter. Um, and if we see someone's got a, a level of 350, we say that's normal. Well, that's yeah. not normal. And B12 is not, uh, levels are not the best way to measure uh, mm-hmm. B12. So I would, I would encourage practitioners to measure um, MMAs, methylmalonic acid, which is a very sensitive way of telling whether there is tissue, B12 deficiency, um, with uh, patients on proton pump inhibitors, uh, other antacids, people over the age of fifty have decreased uh, um, uh, 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 you know, decreased acid production, so more uh, tending towards not necessarily achlorhydria, but. Uh, um, you know, atrophy, um and reduced intrinsic factor, reduced acid production for any reason, ends up decreasing the ability to split B12 from its protein moiety from the diet. Yeah. Um, I would also caution uh, physicians that um, that giving huge doses of B12 is also problematic. You know, people say, hey, uh, even if you get one percent. Uh, absorption by diffusion. Um, that is, um, you know, we, that, you know, we're okay with that. Well, we, we should not be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, B12 uh, is a huge molecule. Gets broken up into little bits and pieces called analogs. They can get absorbed, and some of these analogs have been shown to inhibit B12. Right. Um, it increases uh, g- g- gut microbiome um, growth and a variety of things. It's been shown uh, with uh, high doses of B12 increases various um, solid uh, tumors in a 10-year epidemiologic study of 300,000 um, uh, people who were followed uh, in Europe, uh, you know, published uh, about five years ago. Okay. So big doses of B12 is not benign. Um Big doses of folic may not be benign, particularly for, for pregnant women. Yeah. Um, and not enough coli is not benign. Right. So, so, so there, there's a, a sort of a recalibration here that I think uh, we, we should uh, look at.
1: Okay. Is there, is there any place for um, betaine supplementation or semi-supplementation uh, in cases of already existing uh, non alcoholic fatty liver disease uh, do they play a part in that story or is it enough that the folate b12 and the uh, choline are more than adequate
0: yeah so i i think that the the, the, the choline B, b12 uh, folate story is certainly adequate All right there is data to suggest that b12 um, uh, could be helpful. Uh, there are some papers that that describe that. Um, I guess uh, as as an endocrinologist, I come from the sort of school of thought that that uh, was uh, more inclined to give uh, thyroxine for hypothyroidism because there is a. A natural conversion to T3, yes, and uh, even though that's the active thyroid, you know, uh, hormone, there's a, a sort of a regulatory component that that I don't have control over. Yeah. So, I guess I'm saying that's put in the funnel. That doesn't mean that giving betaine uh, you know, is problematic. Uh, some papers support it uh, as being more effective, and uh, you obviously need, you know, need less. I think it's about a tenth of the amount uh, that that you uh, uh, that's required for for choline, but you know, seventy percent of choline also goes to membrane yeah. synthesis and myelin, um, you know, synthesis. So there, there are lots of uh, B is purely for methylation. Yes, choline is uh, can be used for membrane myelin, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as well.
1: That has been. A fascinating story. I think some real pearls there about maybe the unacknowledged area of the methylation cycle is the, is the choline component of it. Um, I'm hoping now that we all as practitioners kind of have that sense that you have to have the three parts of it. It's not a two-part story of uh, folate and B12. It's a donor and it's a dietary component that we can actually move in and do something about. Significant supplementation. Um, to the diet makes a difference I don't think we can put everyone on estrogen to improve it but for those lucky enough to have their natural estrogens they, they seem to have a bit of advantage over the rest of us and they live a little longer than us so expendable males but I want to thank you for your time Jonathan it's been, it's been great to get into this area and to add one more building block to the whole methylation story, thank you very much my pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for the uh, the honor and the privilege of the, of the call. This is FXomics, and I'm Dr. Mark FX FXomics is brought to you by BioCeuticals Clinical Services.